Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S. For additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Some of you on the phone may be familiar with uh, a program that Byron Wien did for many years, Just Deceased, where he came up with uh, 10 things that he thought were kind of not likely to happen, but might happen, and surprises, he called it. He died earlier in 23, and uh, Michael Semblis, who is a senior investment person at J.P. Morgan, in Byron's memory, and to keep the tradition up, did his own 10 surprises just about a week ago. One of his surprises, and I I, I saw an article about it. I didn't see the actual publication, but one of his surprises was that, to give you a sense for uh, how Byron did it or how Michael Simplis is doing it in to follow on, keep it alive, was that Biden, sometime after Super Tuesday, which is in March, where I think a lot of the southeastern states elect their delegates, sometime after Super Tuesday and the convention would step down because of health issues. Uh, I guess we'd have an open convention then uh, with no delegates pledged to anyone. So it'd be like something from 100 years ago. So in that spirit, I'm going to start on Exhibit C, which is oil. And right at the present time, it looks pretty darn oversupplied. And the price of oil, which is holding in the low 70s, has... At this point, despite all the Houthi activity in the Red Sea, I think has more downside than upside because Saudi Arabia, which is here at 9.3, but I believe for 24, I think their production is running under nine, has in the past when they become upset about people overproducing done market share. Now, last weekend, they changed some differentials oil going to Asia, to China and other places in Asia, reducing the differentials from whatever index they're using. That's not a good sign. I'm sure between myself and Mike and Jason, we're going to have more than 10 surprises when we finish the 30 minutes. But one of the surprises that, you know, and a surprise by definition isn't a prediction, but hey, here's something that might happen. If we turn to Exhibit B, Natural gas just in complete oversupply. And the hope here or the gas bulls or the people like myself who think gas will eventually move back to uh, the $4 range. Think of it. I mean, look at look on that page. Gas average 270 in 2019, 220 in 2020, COVID and whatnot. 370 and 21, six dollars last year, and 280 this coming year, and the strip for 24, as of last Thursday, was 285. 
Now, the key is to have that supply increase calm down. If you look at the production in 2019, it was 88.5 diesel day dry gas, and then 89.9 and 20. Obviously, 20 reduced by having very low prices, and then 91.3 and 21. So you had a pretty good bounce, and and but as you got into 2022, it went from 91.3 to 95.5. And then the next year, 23, the year just finished, 101.8. And then we we hoped that with gas at 280, it would flatten out that 102 range. But no, it's already at the end of the year running 104. So to have to get to that $4 gas level, at least part of the way back to or at least get back to where it was in 23, you have to have a slowdown in supply on the demand side. Residential commercial is flat, has been flat, industrial's flat. Power, fortunately, has been up a couple of bees a day per year. What's happening there is that wind and solar are taking an increasing part of power supply, but they're variable. The wind isn't blowing, you need the gas. If you need power at night, uh, uh, unless you have batteries, you need the gas. So there is some increased gas demand, which was not predicted. It's very fortunate. The key is LNG, which, again, if you look at the chart, was like six Bs a day in 2019, seven in 22, 10.7 in 21, 11.8. So it's been building up. But there's 27 Bs of LNG capacity under construction in the U.S. These are very complicated facilities and expensive facilities to build. But in time, that 15 Bs predicted for 24 will get to 27. Now, that that is important. And there's many other. The whole idea here is to replace the gas that Europe no longer brings from Russia with LNG from the U.S. Here's a bad surprise. Unfortunately, I had a bad surprise for oil if Saudi goes to market share. Bad surprise is that when you start a new LNG project, this doesn't affect the 27 Bs that's under construction. But if you're starting new ones, you have to get an initial approval from the Department of Energy. The Biden administration is considering directing the Department of Energy to not issue any more new uh, initial permits for LNG projects under the theory that LNG is fossil fuels, and they're getting ready to contest an election for president. And I think that in the next couple of months, they're going to get to a position which will help their base, I guess, that new LNG projects should not receive that initial permitting. That's a bad surprise. Not a prediction, but a surprise. On Exhibit A, which is a cash flow statement for the government, it's out of date because the CBO hasn't come out with more numbers um, and the U.S. Treasury hasn't come out with more numbers. But this deficit is not sustainable. It doesn't seem to bother the bond market. The 10-year bond was at 5%. It's now getting to, getting to uh, you know, 4%. You can't maintain a high 10-year rate with low Fed funds rate. And so to the extent the Fed funds rate comes down, which everyone's predicting, 
in 24, that will, people will purchase large amounts of treasuries on credit and finance it in the Fed funds market. So two predictions here, uh, or two surprises. One, that there'll be some problem with that Fed funds market, which will cause the Federal Reserve to come to the rescue. When the Fed Federal Reserve comes to the rescue, the decline in rates and suspension of quantitative tightening will happen. And so while the market, the bond market, you know, the equity markets look pretty calm now. Now, what, what causes bond auctions to get, you know, chaos to develop? What chaos is, is if the Fed funds rate starts to run up and be much higher than other short-term rates. That means whoever uh, is funding the inventory can't replace their debt because this, this debt is done on an overnight basis. Uh, it's, it's, it's basically a repo market. What can cause that in a bond auction, U.S. Treasury bond auction, lack of final demand, so the dealers have to buy more, and the dealers get stretched trying to finance that inventory. I, I, I can't remember. I think Michael Semblis had this as one of their bad, bad, bad surprises, if that's something that Byron Wayne would have had on his list. So there we are. We're through A, B, and C, and I think we've accumulated four or five potential bad surprises. So we're going to go to the front part of the memo now, which leads off with Apple, Alphabet, and Tesla, and then gets into the software companies and chip companies. And we're going to rely on Michael first, Jason second, to give us things on 10 surprises that would be positive. And I guess the first one to uh, lead off with is, uh, and this would be a happy surprise for, Al- for Alphabet, if their trial results in their not being able to send $20 billion to Apple in return for being the default search engine on uh, all iPhones, that would be good for Alphabet. Not necessarily so good for Apple, but definitely uh, something that you don't want to make a prediction, but probably belongs on that 10 surprise list. But over to Michael for his commentary. Well, that that one's interesting because we don't, nobody really knows what the downstream effects of that would be. They have a baseline based on what happened with Apple Maps back in, I call it like 2011, or I think it was around 2011, which has them spooked, which is why they're happy to pay that amount. So if they didn't have to pay it, the worry would be they would uh, lose a lot of um, uh, a lot of customers. The other ones on that page that are interesting for positive surprises or maybe negative surprises um, would be Apple is if they implement an edge model in their phone that they make available to developers for making apps. I think that that will happen. It will be a positive surprise if it happens this year. It'll be a negative surprise if it does not happen this year. Um, Tesla, I would say the positive surprise would be that the autopilot is greenlit by Department of Transportation. Um, The reality is maybe it'll take an administration change for that to happen. I've got an easier uh, positive surprise for Tesla. I think they'll have a new um, in-car operating system for the driver that is language model based. 
and you'll control your entire vehicle through speech. So even though they are trying to go to autopilot, um, you won't have to take your hands off the wheel to control any function in the car. Oh, that would be cool. How, how much would that add to your Model 3 price, do you think, to get that software? I, I'm going to throw it out there. You could, detract, you could reduce your cost. Um, it would obviously it's going to cost money to develop it, but imagine that you could have maybe less screens and less buttons and all of that. Um, so maybe you can reduce some hardware parts. Right. And I, and I think it, I suspect it could be an over the air update since all the, the tests, most of the, t the Teslas have um, the hardware necessary, I suspect to, to run something like that. Oh, oh just, I mean, think about it that all the way back in 2016, the Teslas had NVIDIA GPUs on board. So yeah, Mul there's a lot of, there's a lot of, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of hardware floating around on each one of those cars. Well, we're not even halfway through. Well, we are more than halfway through the 30 minutes. We have, I think I've counted six surprises. And I ask a question about NVIDIA announcing that they have chips or will have chips that will fit in your laptop or possibly in your, in your iPhone. Is that going to be a significant part here? NVIDIA is on page three. If, if NVIDIA can do 80 billion of revenues in 24, and let's say they're able to continue that in 25, give another bit of time. I mean, is that, I guess this is to Jason, is that as much as a several billion dollar market, do you think, for NVIDIA by 25 or 26? I would tend to think that it's not. Their focus is on these high electricity consuming, very powerful GPUs. Um, they have made a line of uh, smaller kind of Raspberry Pi, I believe they're called Jetson um, GPUs to run small algorithms um, so that they have a little bit of experience in that. But I think the handset manufacturers are deeply integrated with you know, the Qualcomm's of the world and to, to produce chips that are very energy efficient and, and tailored to their, to their handsets. So I think, I think that might be a long, you know, if they were to pursue that, that, that might be a couple year out process. Back to, back to surprises. So uh, I'm all the way over on page four already. There was so much publicity for 5G and when we get over on to page five and six, the investment 5G by AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile has to be earning either a very low return or no return. Is there a set of circumstances where the investment by Microsoft and, and others in providing artificial intelligence programs to, to everyone, to the public, to, you know, specialized use. Is, is there any potential to run a couple of years and, and have the take-up be disappointing, like the take-up has been for 5G? I don't think so. Uh, we're seeing a lot of take-up already from a lot of the software companies. Um, and if you look at software development, 
they were the, the first adopters of this AI technologies, uh, the latest ones. And, you know, essentially the first tools were built for software engineers by software engineers. And this is the year we're starting to see a lot of productivity gains um, in that field by using these tools. And then by extension, I think in the next year or two, we're going to see a lot of the productivity gains in um, probably sales and marketing departments, um, more, more functions that are automated or repetitive. Yeah, no, I'll throw, I'll throw an additional surprise out there that's related to AI. Um, a surprise positive one would be the first, I'm fairly certain this hasn't happened yet, but the first um, computer-aided drug discovery candidate will get FDA approval this year. And it's probably too early, but it would be a, it would be a surprise if it happened this year. Um, and the big takeaway for me, for, I, I'm at in San Francisco right now for the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. The NVIDIA presentation was standing room only. People packed in like sardines to hear them talk about essentially computer-aided drug discovery. Um, there's another presentation there from another company called Recursion Pharmaceuticals that seems to be the leader in this. Um, you have some validating actions by some of the larger pharmaceutical players like uh, Amgen is committed to building a big NVIDIA supercomputer. So this whole industry is going to move if, you know, if things play out right, it will move from um, to much higher probability candidates uh, going through the actual expensive and arduous um, uh, regulatory uh, political trials, uh, that part should come through with higher probabilities of success. Um, so, and, and it's based on simulating the biology and the chemistry that happens within the body. So it, it's, it's pretty cool and it's going to completely change this industry in particular. I think uh, another, another industry that I don't know if it's a positive or a negative surprise, depending who you are, but, um, social media will be changed through AI this coming year in that maybe the job of being an influencer will go away. Um, I think we're seeing generative AI, you know, replace these influencers, the, the early stages of that. They're replacing influencers and brands will probably like a um, marketing department controlled person or, you know, person in quotes. Um, rather than a, than a real person that can get into trouble uh, representing their brand. And it'd be a lot cheaper. It's, it's really interesting considering it, the number one desired profession for young people these days is influencer. So it'd be quite disappointing for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. All right. Maybe astronaut can come back on the list. Yeah, yeah. that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. What else do you see, uh, Mike, uh, in the, like when you and Jason get on the phone, what else do you see in the health, co health conference? It seems interesting. Radio Pharmaceuticals has got a much more, uh, it was sort of an obscure part of the pharmaceutical industry. And in recent weeks, there's been a number of big deals announced. Um, Bristol Myers Squibb, who that company is facing patent clip on a number of um, 
very large products. Um, and they went out and bought a company called uh, Rise. How's it called? Rise Bio. Uh, they're in the radio pharmaceutical space, relatively early stage, but it's a signal that stuff's happening in this market, and they're starting to take the radio, radio pharmaceutical market more seriously. Um, the second one is um, Point Biopharma getting acquired by Lilly, or the intent to acquire. Um, that's another big deal. So you now have two major, um, two major pharma companies that have made moves in the space, and kind of expect to see more of it. The third one is Lanthius, which we're obviously fairly partial to. Um, who they did another deal to license an, an isotope. Um, so they now have quite the portfolio and they're the only, I think they might be the only radio pharmaceutical company that really has like a broad portfolio approach to, um, to the category. Uh, everyone else is kind of going after one particular isotope and trying to apply it everywhere. Uh, so I, I actually, I like the strategy and I, I think in general, we'll probably see more use of radio pharmaceuticals. Um, as better ways to treat specifically cancers. And then the second piece is diagnostics. Um, they think that there's more opportunity for diagnostics as well. Right. What about what about other people trying to uh, compete with Vertex if it Vertex Pharmaceutical if it's able to get its pain medication approved? Uh, as I understand it, that the, the technology that's being used here has been, you know, uh, worked on by other people, but the, the problem is, do you, do you have uh, side effects? Or, or if I misstated that, Jason? No, I mean, it, it, <clears throat> companies have been working on this for decades, um, all unsuccessfully up until, until, until Vertex did it recently. Um, a couple of reasons they were unsuccessful, they either had really bad side effects um, and, and that caused the discontinuation of the studies um, before they even got efficacy data. Uh, other times the efficacy data wasn't, wasn't positive. Um, and, and I think one of the big reasons that has stuck out to me that they weren't successful in the past is they're, they were targeting uh, one of the nerve channels that in mouse, in mouse models, it is the one that the primary one that carries the pain signal. Um, in humans, it happens to be the nerve channel directly next to that. So it's different between the mice and and us. And you know, when you're in your preclinical pre research stages, you're basing all your decisions off of what the mouse model told you. Um, so it kind of went down the wrong path. And I don't know exactly the. Um, what triggered Vertex to, to look at um, the 1.8 channel, but, but they did um, and having successful results with that. And due to that, until recently and the results were being published, uh, 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 none of the competitors were, were looking in that direction. Um, so we've, we've searched through the published database of clinical trials and, and we don't see anyone else doing the exact same type of research that Vertex was doing. Um, so we, we feel pretty confident that they have quite the lead. Um, certainly if it's effective, people are looking at it now, but they're. Yeah, I'd say there's people looking, but not as far along. Right. And you remember all the in previous years, 
when opioids were still, I guess, palatable, how are you going to compete against an opioid? So I, I think I think there's fortunately been um, industry-wide and socially uh population-wide uh, wanting some alternative to opioids. So. Absolutely, yeah. The smaller biotech released an opioid, I want to say, last year, um, and it flopped. Uh, and they recently sold the rights to it away for you know, pennies on the dollar of what the research cost. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. If you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. This is not an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. And now back to the show. I, I have a, another surprise to throw in here that I think is something to keep an eye on. And what Jason was just talking about as far as the mouse models and the animal models that drug testing goes through before it goes into human. Another surprise could be that the FDA will um, accept data from in silica experiments, you know, meaning computer modeled experiments of the biology and chemistry um, simulated to be with the way it would react within a human body and use those to allow and enable them to proceed into an inhuman study as opposed to having to do the in uh, the animal studies. And the, the reason that's important is that it's not just these pain studies where things are different from the animal model to the human model. There's actually quite a few things, and it's well-documented and well-understood. But because that's the way we've always done things, um, it's a barrier to some types of drug and treatment developments. Well, in closing, I'm happy we, we came up with some good surprises. And I apologize to Mike and Jason and everyone on the phone for not being able to come up with good surprises for oil, gas, or coping with our deficit. But I think I think what this is illustrative of is that cash flow, free cash flow, cash flow after capex, is basically with the companies that are making these new developments, especially if they can do it within cash flow and it, we can't necessarily predict that this coming year we'll have seven stocks, the magnificent seven, lead the charge. But I think what we can say over a extended period of time, half a decade or more, that if there's going to be upside, it will be where the, the new developments are happening, and uh, especially where they can be done out of free cash flow. And with that, we'll, uh, the three of us had a a good time doing our uh, who's going to have the highest percentage increase in free cash flow. And we're going to replicate that now four times a year. Uh, we'll, we'll do it on May 1, at the end of the first quarter, and, and then July 1, and then October 1. I think what we'll do, because I do think this looking for surprises, good or bad, is really important part of the investment process. I think we'll try to do this quarterly as well. And uh, Mike will at least inform Jason and myself where, where we thought there were bad surprises and good surprises. So when we do this, the second meeting of the uh, second Wednesday of the, of the second quarter, we will recapitulate how we've done on the bad and good surprises and then modify them or add ones uh, and try to do that four times a year. I think it's a, 
good thing to do as part of the investment process. With that, everyone stay healthy and uh, stay well, and we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, Neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.